The most popular treatment model in America for alcoholism is the AA 12-step model in which the addict recognises a higher power and acknowledges that even if they have one drink, just one, then they've failed. How did this scientifically dubious method become the standard treatment for all addiction? And what connection has it with the idea of addiction as a disease, a mental disorder, an allergy or perhaps a weakness of character? My first guest this morning is Gabrielle Glaser. She's author of a 2015 essay in The Atlantic magazine called The Irrationality of Alcoholics Anonymous. Gabrielle, can you tell me what is the history of AA? Its roots are in a 19th century evangelical Christian group called the Oxford Group. The main tenet is that human beings are fallible, and by confessing their sins, they can correct them. And AA grew directly from that model. So who founded it? Two men. One was Bill Wilson. He was a failed stockbroker who had tried several medical interventions to get sober and had not succeeded. And his counterpart, Dr. Bob, who was not necessary to say, but he was a proctologist. All right. Okay. (laughs) And the theory behind it is this idea of the 12 steps. Take me through that. That a person who has a drinking problem, has a severe drinking problem, is powerless over alcohol. And with God's help, And through confession and through righting one's wrongs and going to meetings, frequent meetings, one can recover as best as one can. But the theory, you know, based in 1935 thinking was that this is a chronic progressive, and I say disease in quotes, in air quotes, that was constantly waiting to reassert itself and to hit you again the minute alcohol touched your lips. And the only way to keep it at bay is to go through these 12 steps repeatedly throughout one's life. And you said you put disease in air quotes. Why do you do that? Because the disease model of AA is very different from the scientific notion of disease. AA holds that Alcoholism, again, a very, very dated word in the U.S. We don't use that word anymore. But AA holds that alcoholism is a disease, a chronic progressive disease, as I said, that one is essentially born with this and it'll never go away without doing this one particular thing, abstaining from alcohol for the rest of one's life and going through these steps. Well, a disease like diabetes, like cancer, it's not something that is cured by going to a church basement and doing confession and steps. One might get support for one's illness in that way, but it's certainly not a cure. And scientists now think of alcohol use disorder, that's what the the new term is, at least in the U.S., is on a spectrum. Alcoholism according to the AA model, it's extremely binary. You either are or you're not. An alcohol use disorder is something that's on a spectrum. You can be affected mildly, you can be affected moderately, you can be affected severely. Now, so how widespread is that AA model in the recovery world, we'll say, in America? In the U.S., it is used in well over at least 
two-thirds, some estimates say 80 to 90 percent of all rehabilitation facilities. So we have a definite over-reliance on a method that is really only effective about 5 to 8 percent of the time. Well, that's what I just wanted to get on to. What is the evidence as to how effective this method actually is? Well, you can't really study it, right? Because you cannot do a randomly controlled double-blind trial of Alcoholics Anonymous because one would know, right? A subject is going to know that one is in AA or not, right? Mm. So that's one problem. And you, you can't, because it's anonymous, the tenants hold that members are anonymous. That presents another problem for studying it. If you're going to study it effectively, how do you study something where people aren't followed longitudinally? And the reason I think that it has gone so unchecked and spread so widely is because the narrative is an extremely powerful one. It's The United States is a very Christian nation, as you know, mm-hmm. and we love redemption narratives. And AA holds that, okay, I was blind, but now I can see. And we cherish that in the United States. We love that story. Now, in your article in The Atlantic, you're critical as well of this idea of the binary thing of if you have one drink, then that's it. You failed and it's a disaster. What is the effect of that one drink and it's over on the alcoholic or the person suffering from alcoholic use disorder? I know it's a mouthful, isn't it? It's very clunky. (laughs) I think personally, and I don't have a problem with alcohol, personally, I think it's devastating. If you are struggling with alcohol and you're struggling not to drink, you're struggling to change your life and change your habits and, and become healthier, and you have that one drink, let's say you've You followed the program for two and a half years. You feel that you've got it under control. Then you have one drink. Or you have even, in some cases, a bite of frosting that might have rum in it, right? Mm. People would consider, in some very hardline cases that I've heard, and I've heard from thousands of readers across the United States and and the English-speaking world, if you have one sip of alcohol, well, that's it. If you have a doctrinaire sponsor... Your sobriety's over, and you have to start back at ground zero. And personally, I think it's, it's a terrible message. It's devastating. It doesn't mean you've lost everything. It just means you had a drink, you were experimenting, you did research, you were doing research. Can I control this? Can I not? And it's extremely undermining. Does it as well have the effect that if you're so warned about this, that if you have the one drink or maybe two, well, then you say to yourself, oh, well, that's it. I've had a drink, so now I might as well have 20. Because... Exactly, exactly. That's another story that I've heard many, many, many times. All right, because I am an alcoholic. I have this mindset, right? If you believe in the 12 steps and you believe in, in what the big book tells you, you accept that you are, quote, unquote, an alcoholic, then, all right, I know I can't stop because I am powerless over alcohol. I don't have the willpower, and forget it. I might as well just, as you said, have 20. Why stop it too? Why not just get totally loaded? Now, what are the alternative treatments? And is your argument that the AA model has squeezed out the mere concept of alternative treatments? Absolutely. It has taken all of the oxygen from alternate methods that have been in play throughout Europe, throughout the rest of the developed world for 
decades. One that is shown to be most effective is a drug called naltrexone, which is an opioid blocker that if you take it, it prevents your brain from releasing endorphins. Or it Actually, it doesn't prevent the brain from releasing endorphins. Endorphins are released, but that good feeling you get, one gets when one takes a first drink or a second drink, that relaxation, that's the release that in part is due to the release of endorphins. So what happens if a person takes naltrexone and then has a drink the naltrexone blocks the endorphins from getting to their target, which is the opioid receptor. And that method has been in use in Finland for since the early 1990s to great, great, great success. And people are able to moderate their drinking as opposed to stop it altogether, which is a really difficult step for a lot of people to take. Some people do decide, okay, Maybe I'm not the kind of person who can moderate, but this method that's used that I just described mm. involves taking the drug about an hour before one drinks or one is set to drink, and then you don't, you don't feel the buzz. You're still drinking, but the desire to, to drink more is really removed because you're not chasing that. It's that, not doing that, anything for you. Exactly. You might as well have some cough syrup because it's simply, it's just not... And do people have the discipline to take the drug before they take the drink? They do. That's a great question. They do because the results are so positive and so rewarding that the incentive is there. They find that they reclaim their evenings. They reclaim their time with their children. They remember what they read. They remember what they watch on television. They're more present in their own lives. So So are you saying that... Say if I am an alcoholic and I go to my doctor in America and I say, look, I've, I've got this problem, what do I do? That there's still a culture in maybe the medical world there that would refer you to the unscientific 12-step program rather than medication, which you'd think would be a more scientific and evidence-based approach. Absolutely, because medical doctors in this country, the vast majority of of physicians are not trained in modern addiction medicine. We have a huge dearth of addiction specialists in the United States, and most medical school students, when they do get their training, they just observe AA for a week or two during medical school. And so there's an enormous ignorance about modern methodology that's been successfully deployed in treating alcohol use disorder. And there are other medications too, by the way. Naltrexone is is the most What was the reaction to your article? Oh, it was overwhelming. There were more, I think about 15,000 comments on the Atlantic's website. And personally, I received death threats. I received death tweets. People wrote me Chasing emails on, uh, not emails, but messages on, on Facebook. They went after my, I have three daughters, which I, my website says they went after my, you know, people telling me they wish my daughters, would, harm would come to my daughters. That was the, the initial response from people who were in AA themselves. And after about a week, I got almost nothing but 
positive responses and queries for, oh, thank God, somebody's finally writing about this. Can I, where can you refer me to help? I need help. I've been through rehab four or five, six times. I bankrupted my family. Can you please help me? Where can I find this medication? Well, you know you've written something important when you get that kind of reaction, I think. I hope that was some comfort to you as you were going through that. It was actually. I was I was de- initially I was a little um I was a little buoyed and I was a little disturbed by it. Yeah. I I've got a pretty tough skin, but when I opened my computer one night and there, you know, these these threats were were there about my daughters, I was just I just burst into yeah. tears and just shut the computer and and told, you know, informed Twitter, look, this is terrible, this is abusive. But then the good responses did come, and that was extremely gratifying. I really did feel, Sarah, as if I'd, I'd done something that was beneficial for Well, I, I think it really was a benchmark piece, and I hope in the long term it certainly has some effect on medical practice. Gabrielle, I have to leave it there for today. Thank you so much for giving us your time and explaining My pleasure. Us. Thanks for having me. In studio now with me to discuss this is Joe Barry. He's the chair of Population Health Medicine at Trinity College Dublin. Shane Butler is a former director of addiction studies at Trinity College and also from the Trinity family. This morning is Professor Catherine Komiski and she's chairperson of the National Advisory Committee on Drugs and Alcohol. Shane Butler, I really want to get to the heart of what addiction is. In that interview, Gabrielle said she was putting the term disease in quotation marks. What is it? Is it a disease? Is it a weakness of character? Is it a bad habit? What is it? I I can't answer that question without referring to that. It is, I hate to defend the Irish Health Service, the Department of Health, Health Service Executive, the Health Boards. Everything she said is completely irrelevant in this country. The last time the word alcoholism was mentioned in a health policy document in Ireland was in 1984, in a mental health policy document called Planning for the Future. They had a paragraph on alcoholism simply and solely to demolish it, to say, look, this is a silly concept. It is gone. Her, the uh, American woman's ideas about a spectrum of alcohol-related problems, we have had that in the health services here. We, we do have what are called Minnesota model agencies, which adapted something to the 12 steps of AA. But we, we also, through the health service executive and the health boards going back 25, 30 years, we have a much broader approach to managing health problems. We're not fixated on ideas about diseases or about abstinence. And it would be quite wrong for anyone to think that what that woman described as being the norm in the US is the norm here. And it, that simply isn't the case. Now, she also is quite unfair to Alcoholics Anonymous. I am not a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, <laughs> yet anyway, and um, I'm not a spokesperson for them, but I did research AA in Ireland and I know it quite well. The 12 steps are what they, they call a suggested programme. The steps are all written in the past tense. So there's no imperative. The idea is that people, they say, we did this. This is something we found helpful. We thought that we were people who couldn't manage our drinking. We tried this and it worked. It's not religious in the sense of belonging to any particular sectarian group. They do talk about a higher power. The higher power can be whatever you want. Dublin alcoholics who tried it out, it's joking to say, their higher power can be the 46A bus, if that's what you want. It seems to be able to go past pubs more than I could ever do, that kind of thing. And... Um, AA doesn't have any theory. It doesn't have a theory. It has nothing really to say about alcoholism. It is a purely pragmatic approach. They said, we found this helpful. If you want to try it, try it. They don't see it as a treatment. They call it what they do. They don't even call it an organisation. They call it a fellowship. 
and they don't have any interest in, in propagandising. They don't look or agree to serve on policy forums. They don't sit on public committees. They don't contribute to debates, say, on whether health insurance should give extended cover for residential rehab. And uh, they don't get involved in debates, say, like at the current one is the, the Public Health Alcohol Bill. AA simply exists for one purpose, that anyone who thinks that they have a serious problem with alcohol and they're finding it difficult to stop, they can try that. And there is a lot of empirical research published in good referee journals over the last 20 years that shows that for a lot of people, AA is, is helpful. For people who are profoundly alcohol dependent, it provides a readily available, free support system. And in a society where there are very few non-drinkers, where it's hard to have a peer group that, that are non-drinkers, that is, that is valuable. So AA doesn't even attempt to, def- to define alcoholism. And I suppose because I'm a social scientist, not, not a medic. I would say AA is just, or sorry, addiction is a concept that evolved over about 200 years. Struggles always with some basic things, like the philosophically ideas about personal freedom and responsibility. Um, the issue is whether people freely continue, say, to drink, even when their um, alcohol consumption is causing problems. And also whether people should be held responsible. The notion of a disease was a problematic one in the sense that it said... There was a point of view that has emerged every now and then, saying we, if we call this a disease, that we are going to bring people into the health service and, and, and that will be better than, say, criminalising them. There, there is no dramatic technical breakthrough. I don't believe that, they, I think with the naltrexone she was talking about, yeah. I'm not sure that that is as good as she says it is. But we, we have, in Ireland, we have a range of counselling services and they are not uh, obsessed with diseases or AA or anything else. Right. But with Joe Barry, what do you think is the nature of addiction? Well, I think taking a psychoactive substance that, you know, impacts severely on a person's health and person's well-being, person's social functioning. I mean, there are levels of dependence. In Ireland, I think you have to think of the substance as well because there are different etiologies or different ways the sort of the social profile of opiate addiction or heroin addiction or heroin dependence in Ireland is very different from the social profile of alcohol. So um, sticking with the alcohol one, you know, do you call it a disease? Or I've heard Matthew Perry, the guy from Friends, call it that he basically has an allergy to drink, that if he has one, he just goes crazy. Is it a psychological condition, you know, because maybe of your background, is it a bad habit or is it some just kind of weakness of character? These discussions never happen in practice at, at work. I mean, it's people come because they're taking a substance that's causing them some grief or causing their family some grief. So you then make an assessment. Uh, and the labelling is not the issue. Uh, in Ireland, in relation to alcohol, um, we have obviously a history and a culture that's fairly steeped in alcohol. 20% of Irish adults don't take any alcohol. There's about 8% in different studies and surveys have been shown to have serious dependency issues with alcohol where some type of psychological support and treatment is, is recommended. And then for the group in the middle, about two-thirds of the group in the middle drink uh, alcohol at levels that if they continue to, it will cause them harm. And then there's about a third of the other group will, where it doesn't really cause but a problem. why isn't it important why they drink that if you only look at how they're drinking, surely how you treat something is a function of why they're drinking. Well, why why the people why youngsters drink alcohol is because it's very heavily marketed at them in Ireland. Uh, it's the social norm. 
Uh, they see alcohol being taken by their parents and by everybody around them. They see alcohol being glamorised in sport and they see people saying, well, what's the problem with alcohol? So that's why Irish youngsters take alcohol. It's not anything to do with their psyche. Well, Catherine, what do you think? I mean, why? So I drank an awful lot when I was in college. I came out of college with an ulcer, you know, so I just stopped. For a while, (laughs) you know. Regardless of what I think, there are actually addiction theories. Yeah. All right. So there's two main types of theories, you know, in practice and is one thing with the sort of the the literature and the theory. So one theory would be like a social connectedness, social network theory that we're addiction or we take substances because we're in a social group. Examples would be areas of deprivation, you know, where the patterns are repeated. So it's to do with what your peers and your social group are involved in. That's one theory. So that's like a a social theory. The other theory would be what they call um, utility, individual utility. So if I benefit from it. So if the, the benefit I get, as perhaps you did in college, outweighs the disadvantages, then you, you'll continue. So those are the two sort of main theories or areas of theories. Now, there's a lot more than that to it. But one is the social connectedness and one is the social utility, individual-based theory. And, and why do some people seem unable to stop? even when it's clear to them and everyone around them that it's doing a lot of harm, that they just seem to start and they can't stop? Well, I mean, at an individual level, there's different reasons for different people and, you know, practice tailors towards the individual. But in the academic literature, I suppose it would be, it would depend upon one of those theories of which one is operating or stronger, having a stronger influence in that person's life at that time. So, again, if you take a young male born in a deprived area where there's several generations of substance use, well, you know, the theory would say that that social network is having a greater impact on that person than the social network maybe somewhere else or the individual benefits. So it depends on the situations. And it's a shame, you know, what's your response to that? That, I mean, mine would have grown up and there would have been people that you knew who seemed to have a reasonably standard life. And yet, for some reason, there was this kind of addiction, as we call it, to alcohol. They couldn't stop drinking and it created havoc. But they seemed genuinely powerless, as that A kind of model would say, to alcohol and to overcome it. So what's, what's going on with somebody there? And, there, and how does that inform the treatment of them then? I don't think it informs the treatment at all. I think I agree with Joe. Right. Uh, pr- pragmatism rules. Nobody really would dispute that there are some individual vulnerabilities. There are some people who, for whatever reasons, which we don't understand and perhaps never will understand, whether they're psychologically vulnerable or they're in some way biologically or genetically vulnerable, there are some people who definitely have difficulties. And that AA model that was being being slagged off a little while ago uh, doesn't try to explain that. It simply says that when people realise that for whatever reason they can't control it, this is something you can try. But that, that when you take that to, to an extreme, as has happened a few times uh, over the last century, it becomes problematic. In the 1930s, post-prohibition in the United States, they had, you know, gone through a period of about whatever, 15 years prohibition, which wasn't terribly successful. They then made alcohol legal again, and that raises the issue, well, if alcohol is a dangerous drug, why are we legalising it? And the the time was ripe, but the, the atmosphere at that time was useful, you know, it was useful to say, well, alcohol isn't a dangerous drug, there's only a tiny proportion of consumers for whom it is it is dangerous. The statistic totally without foundation really was 10% of drinkers are going to be alcoholic. 
the implication was the other 90% can drink with impunity. So that notion was promoted by World Health Organization from the early 50s after WHO was founded. For about 25 years, roughly, they pushed that, that you just have to look at those unfortunate few who are alcoholic for whatever reason, which we don't fully understand. And then WHO dropped that. It's gone back to more of a spectrum idea and saying, you know, the great cliche is alcohol is no ordinary commodity. It poses risk to all its consumers. And an awful lot of the problems, probably the bulk of the problems that we endure in this country, alcohol-related problems, whether they're in the health area or the area of criminal justice, public order offence or domestic violence or whatever, they don't literally involve alcohol dependence. So that I don't think it's helpful to get too hung up on addiction to alcohol or dependence on alcohol or alcoholism or whatever we call it. More recently, say about 20 years ago, again in the United States, the National Institute of Drug Abuse started this notion, addiction is a brain disease. Yeah. Again, that is probably seen by most people other than a few neuroscientists as a fairly naive approach. Joe has already said, if you look at the brain disease of heroin addiction in Ireland, it appears to be it's not randomly distributed across the population, that social factors are much more persuasive. We want to understand where risk comes from. The, the neuroscience isn't particularly helpful. If you look at something that doesn't involve drugs, say like gambling, and there are lots of gambling problems, and our common sense tells us that probably as gambling opportunities increase all the time and people have access to online gambling, there are more people are going to gamble, and the problems are going to be the same kind of a spectrum of problems affecting a lot of people, not those who have what the neuroscience people refer to as a hijacked brain. And if we were, if we were to do anything about that, which we're pretty slow about, it would probably involve control and regulation of gambling, not giving therapy or helping some addic- addicted gamblers to sort of find out why they're doing it. Yeah, it's really interesting, actually. So what I'm learning so far is this um, big divide between America and Europe in the approach to it. Joe? Well, I yeah. don't know. I don't know. Does she speak for all America? America is a very divided country. Yeah, but moment, I think it is clear that that model is the overwhelming model of choice in the States. But look, we, we don't need to get too hung up yeah. on it. Um, so if we go back to that thing about addiction then and how, therefore, the health service should deal with addicts. So if you take, say, heroin addicts, alcoholics, gamblers, do they treat those in particularly different ways and what are they? Okay, well, if we start with heroin, heroin really came to Ireland in the late 70s, to Dublin in fact, in the late 70s, early 80s and for 10 years the main response was if you were happy to go drug free you'd get support, which of course was complete nonsense because (laughs) people weren't able to not take heroin and then what drove change initially was control of bloodborne viruses, particularly HIV so what was adopted was what's called a harm reduction approach, which really is trying to minimise the harm. Um, and that was done through methadone substitution and uh, needle exchange. So that really wasn't... That was an approach, a response to individual people who were addicted to heroin, who were taking lots of heroin, wasn't really necessarily for their own benefit, was trying to protect the community from the spread of viruses. And that has been the predominant response to opiates on the basis that having somebody taking a substance under 
controlled clinical conditions was safer than being on street heroin. So does and that mean they effectively abandoned the idea of mm. curing the addicts, that it was just no. keep them in a situation no. where they're no. causing no. as little trouble as possible? Not abandoned, but the main public funding went into that approach to try and reduce bloodborne viruses. And the evidence for that was that things like crime would reduce, the spread of bloodborne viruses would reduce if women who were using drugs were coming in contact with the health services, that they would, you know, there would be better support for them as parents. So it was a much more broader approach. The drug-free community, if we call it that for want of another mm. term at the moment, were very resistant to that because people had very strong beliefs about what was working and what wasn't working. And, of course, life is much more complicated than that. So that's how heroin was treated. And it was, it's very socioeconomically driven and what you need to do to try and reduce heroin intake is keep people and children keep children in school longer things like that very basic not to the health services at all um, and it's no coincidence that in most countries opiate use is much more prevalent in poor um, communities in right just one other thing yeah just in terms of the social aspects in the in the vietnam war lots of the american troops took heroin took opiates and when they came back to america the war was over you know they oh, didn't yeah. continue you know so settings and circumstances can change right but if you've got 10,000 drug addicts taking methadone supervised by the state now, what is that saying to them? You are physically dependent on this substance, therefore we'll give you the substance so you don't commit crimes to get it. Is that... It's a lot more subtle than that. I mean, I think some people will move on to a drug-free approach and, you know, the there's a lot of benefits for, you know, these fellowships that, that Jane mentioned. You know, they can provide some supports and some people after many years of using drugs, uh, opiates, uh, even methadone, manage, make a decision that they want to try and stop. And some stop and some go back. Catherine, do they? Yes. For for a start, I don't talk about addicts. I talk about people who use drugs. Right. And that is the philosophy now, is that these are people. These are not addicts. They're people like you and me. And I think that's an important distinction. They're parents. They're young people. They're somebody's daughter, somebody's member of a community. So they're people first. Right. Yes. I mean, as you've heard, I mean, there is a whole harm reduction philosophy in Ireland now. That is that the approach is to reduce harm to the individual, the family and the community and the society at large. So that is the harm reduction philosophy. And it's about reducing harm to the individual person and the the society they live in. But also now we're finding that it's actually more even more than harm reduction, that we're talking now about rehabilitation and recovery. And recovery doesn't necessarily mean drug-free. It means leading a a more fulfilling uh, life, having well-being, better mental health, being able to participate in further education, contributing to society, uh, looking after your children, living with your children, having housing. We have done studies in Trinity College. um, I led a study called the Rosie Study, which followed over 400 people who use opiates over a period of three years as they entered uh, treatment, methadone treatment, detox treatments, abstinence-based treatments and needle exchange. So what was the result? What was the most effective? We don't compare. We just see, do people get better? And when people enter treatment, they do improve. It may take time. But are you saying when they enter any treatment? Yes. It's all part of the treatment pathway. It's, as that lady, as we heard, people relapse but they get better, a little bit better. They might use again. Right, but, but in that study of, say, methadone versus rehab versus whatever, are you telling me that none of them had a better outcome over the other? 
depends on what a better outcome is defined. I mean, if you're well, living if you on define, the street and you're using needles, yeah. then a better outcome for you is maybe home, have a home that you can start getting onto a methadone treatment list. But the needle exchange will have kept you alive. A better outcome for a parent might be being on methadone but now living with their children. A better outcome for somebody in detox might be to be drug free or to stay, you know, to come through a prison system maybe and be able to go back to society, you know, drug free or on a methadone program. But so outcomes is, differ. Right. But would drug free mm. surely not be the benchmark? Like, is that not the ultimate benchmark? Well, it depends on where you're starting. I mean, it depends on what the individual is most important for that individual at that time. You know, it's not as black and white as that. You know, it depends on the individual. An individual care plan is the ideal scenario. What is best for that person and their family, community at that time? And how can we get that for them? Mm. That's what we as a society are about now. So Shane Butler, I guess I'm just a little concerned that say just sticking with things like heroin addiction for the moment, I want to get back onto alcohol because I think it's it's more widespread problem, that if you have 10,000 people using methadone, that somehow that's a nice handy way for the society to, you know, block off those people and say, right, they're... They're being taken care of. They're, there's harm reduction. They won't do as much damage to the rest of us as if they're out there dealing heroin. But they're not being helped to be drug free, which surely must be the best outcome. Why? Good question. Because what kind of a life is it if you require this chemical substance, be it alcohol or be it heroin, simply in order to be able to function? Um, I won't give you full marks on that answer. <laughs> um, What's wrong with it? What's wrong with my answer? I think that you're, you're starting from a very abstract, kind of idealistic view about what constitutes a good outcome. If technologies existed to get people drug-free and keep them drug-free, we might then have ethical discussions about that, whether the health service has a right to do that. But the fact of the matter is we don't have technologies to get people drug-free and keep them drug-free. And I would be very upset if I thought that roughly 10, 11,000 people, whatever it is at the moment, on methadone, that they are all being pushed by the state into this and kept there against their will. I don't think that is the case. I think that from, you know, you're right, from a common sense point of view, it's not a great life to be totally dependent on an opiate that you've got to take every day, even if it is supplied by the, the, the health service. But we don't have any alternative if people are clear that they, don't, they themselves don't wish to become drug-free. It's a basic kind of thing in counselling that you talk about client self-determination. And the notion that the health service can decide that the drug-free or the recovery method is the best thing and you impose it on people, that is unacceptable, I think. And most people, when they think about it, would know that. So we don't have those kind of choices available to us. I think a lot of doctors who work as methadone prescribers also have to struggle with very practical difficulties. The Getting people who are on methadone, who are long-time long opiate users, getting them drug-free, it's not that difficult technically. People can be either a short in residential detox or a more phased one on community. But once people become drug-free, they, they lose their opiate tolerance. And an awful lot of doctors that I have known and worked with, their fear is that if you relapse, 
and your opiate tolerance is gone, there's a huge risk of fatal overdose. If you are, say, going to AA and you fall off the wagon and you have a few drinks, it may not be all that nice, but it doesn't have those those awful risks attached to it. So it's a much more sort of grey area than the clear, clear black and white of, you know, holding up harm reduction and, and uh, recover, or abstinence as though they are they are totally incompatible. I think in fairness to the health system here, there are options for people to become drug-free if that's what they really want. And um, there are options for people to stay on indefinite methadone. From my point of view, I agree. I don't think it's a great lifestyle. But as Joe has pointed out repeatedly, it's not simply that these people are drug addicts. These are people who are multiply deprived. They have so many other difficulties. Mm. And the phrase used a lot now in the international research is that people can recover when they have recovery capital. And an awful lot of the poor people that are on, that are opiate dependent in this country or long term on, on methadone, don't have recovery capital. And you can't blame the health service for that because, as Joe has said, Joe, there are a whole lot of other Joe, things Joe, would need. you mind if I got back just for a second to the idea of self-determination and about free will? Because, for example, another thing that's going on in the country is the health service is freaking out over benzodiazepam and that particularly amongst women, there's over-prescription of things like Xanax. And this is terrible. And they're constantly writing to GPs, you must stop this. We cannot have these women going around with their Xanaxes as their little crutch. We have uh, instituted in this country a groundbreaking campaign against smoking because we say, no, it's bad. And we don't care if you like your cigarettes. This is harmful to society. So we do pick substances and say, we don't want you on this and we are going to do our best to deprive you of it. Whereas with heroin, for some reason, we go, well, we don't, we just want you to do this legally so you're not a nuisance. How do why are we picking certain things to deny people and other things to feed them on it? I think, well, for a start, there is more of a consensus about tobacco. And the official aim of the state, the Department of Health, is to have a tobacco-free society. Now, what they mean by that is a smoking prevalence of 5% or less. And there has been a lot... Ireland has led lots of public health legislation about tobacco smoke. And obviously, those people... I think tobacco causes lots of health harms. Mm. And that's the logic behind trying to do it. Some people can't give up. Some people can, and there's patches and stuff like that to help people give up. In relation to heroin use, everybody has a view on heroin. Most people have never met a heroin addict, but that doesn't stop people having a view. So the context in which policy is set becomes more complex then. At the present, in, in the north inner city, there has been a task force chaired by Kieran Mulvey to look at the drug issue. When I was, it was put together by the government because 10 people were murdered. But is there a view that that's a social problem? Well, different people have different views. I think it's a social issue. I think it's to do there. things are tolerated amongst the community in the north inner city by the state that wouldn't be tolerated in other parts of the city. There's a lot of open drug dealing in the streets. That doesn't happen in lots of parts of Dublin. Let me put this to you. What would happen if we changed policy and we said we're not going to have methadone anymore? Okay, if you are a drug addict, we can either put you in jail for the crimes that you have committed in an attempt to get this, but that'll fill up the prisons and, you know, it doesn't solve much. But instead, we're going to actually try and cure people by getting them off this drug. And we'll put them into residential care units and detox them. Now, I I acknowledge that you're probably listening to my language and I, you know, I'm coming at this very much from a layman's point of view. But... What would happen if the policy changed? People you know, would die. <laughs> okay, yeah. from what? From from overdose? 
Right. And I mean, methadone is a harm reduction approach. It keeps people alive until and if they want to be but drug free. has it become a stopgap? I suppose that's what I'm trying to get at, that it has impeded perhaps a more radical approach that might get people off it. And well, it probably is a stopgap to some extent, but not necessarily. We don't necessarily need a more radical approach. When methadone trials were first done, I think was it the seventies, 60s, 70s of a dolanized wander in the states. It, uh, along with the methadone, you were supposed to deliver counselling and a full sort of person-centred care. So when methadone was initially uh, did clinical trials on it, that was how it was envisaged that it would be delivered. So that would be the full package. So this is why now, in a sense, we're looking at what I would like to call harm reduction plus. So you've got your harm reduction, which maybe is your methadone, your needle exchange, Mm. plus an approach towards rehabilitation. as well, Sarah, in Mm. the stimulants. Methadone is a heroin is a depressant. Whereas um, ecstasy and stuff like that, they're stimulants. And then these Z drugs. and you know, So it's unusual. There are some people in Ireland, lots of people in Ireland, who only take methadone and nothing else, or maybe prescribe medication from time to time. But most people who take illicit drugs will take cocktails. And the, the Health Research Board keeps a, a, what they call a drug-related death index, looking at what, how do people die from overdose every year. And uh, it's, it's usually a cocktail mm. of an opiate, alcohol and benzodiazepine. So basically... The general aim is to try and reduce the availability of different types of psychoactive substances. In in heroin, obviously, there are criminal sanctions. With yeah. alcohol, the people who sell alcohol are so powerful that they've you know completely swamped the public health community in terms of influencing. And the government. then, just to clarify, so I completely understand the way that someone gets physically dependent mm. on something like heroin. Can the same thing happen with alcohol? And yeah, then to DTs, then if you're deprived of it. But I mean, as Shane said, it's not technically difficult to detoxify somebody, but it's keeping people. You said forcing people to be detoxed. That, you, but that was one of your scenarios. Yeah. yeah that, but after that, then what happens? People will start using stuff again. Okay, let's say I mentioned this earlier. Matthew Perry Chandler from Friends. Yeah. You know, he's spoken out a lot about this because he had a problem with alcohol. And the way he says it is, he says, "I have an allergy to drink." If I touch one drink, that's it. I go crazy. I'm allergic to alcohol. Now, do you accept that as a kind of definition or do you think it is just simply a more complex psychological problem to do with people's backgrounds, characters, social contexts, pressures that they're under, all of that? If we're back to talking about individual cases. Yes. And um, this is Chandler from Friends. Friends. Yes. Um, speaking I would say, it, speaking yeah. in a real life context okay. as the actor <laughs> yeah. Matthew Perry. Okay. Um, he seems to find that helpful and therefore he should stick to it. And, right. And, and no, but I don't believe that that is going to help everybody. And I think that even within AA, you don't get that kind of dogmatism. There is a slower process that people who go to AA are people who normally say, I've tried everything and I can't stop. And some people in AA do, you know, I would think it's probably common for people to talk about part of the ordinary lore of drug diseases. Okay, but let's say... But it's not an official line. Okay, but let's say in your experience, if you've got people who have an alcohol problem, okay, and we're not talking here so about maybe the social deprivation that you might find in the inner city. Let's talk about middle class people who are going out and, you know, maybe functioning and then maybe starting to not function. Is it better for them or have you seen evidence that a model where they swear completely off alcohol 
and accept that they cannot touch it. Or a model whereby, like in Finland, where they take a drug that dulls the effects of alcohol and allows them to function in a social context a little bit better. You know, which of those, in your experience, works better? I, as I said already, I, I, I doubt very much whether it is it naltrexone they're talking yeah, about, yeah. whether it is that effective. Again, we're back to talking about technologies, and I, 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 I don't believe that so far any technology has been developed any pharmacological product that is totally resolved. Joe, no, it just in in advance of the the, the program, uh, Sarah, I checked out, uh, tried to check out uh, with with the health service executive about a drug called Nalmef. Nalmefine, which yeah. was very heavily promoted by the manufacturers about two years ago and they persuaded the HSE to fund it. Uh, but I haven't been able to get any answers. To yeah, and actually on that, you see, I contacted the HSE months ago about this programme and I was saying to them, how do you decide where to give the money? Because this is what I, how I really actually came into this was. If you have this addiction problem throughout Ireland, let's say be it drink or be it heroin, who gets the money and how do you decide where the most effective places are to send that money? And I couldn't get an answer. And they seemed to be kind of confused as to why I was even asking it. Well, you have to do modelling and you have to do studies of the drug, its effectiveness and its cost and but, benefit analysis. Right, but there's but like Michael Barry is yeah. the head of the, the pharmacological quango that decides this drug works better than this drug, so we will fund drug A. When I ask these questions for addiction, everyone looks at me as if there's something wrong with me. And I'm there saying, oh, well, you'd have to, you know, look for the evidence that, but haven't well, you been doing this? Well, I is cost, uh, cost efficient, yeah, I mean, isn't it? It has a strong cost benefit. I think benefit. There, are, there are structures. I mean, I suppose one of the things, <clears throat> Sarah, I mean, there are huge pressures on, on the public purse for lots of competing interests. Yes. And, and to give... Let's go back to, say, giving people recovery capital or whatever. To do that properly, you'd you'd have to invest quite a bit. And the numbers of people who have a big need is high, whether it is heroin. Uh, it's estimated in a couple of studies that there's about 150,000 what we call alcohol-dependent people, for want of another yeah. term. Yeah. You know, the extreme end of the... Of the of, so... More could be done if there was more supports for them, but it's it's a very, very big challenge. So that's why, at a very pragmatic level, you say, well, how do you decide what to do? And, I'd say, and the alcohol, one of the big principles, we're trying to reduce the numbers of people who will end up with health problems, i.e. the public health alcohol bill. And you can see the industry lobbying against that. Yeah. So that's a reality we have to deal with. Obviously, there's a consensus, by and large, that people who deal in heroin are bad. Yeah. Um, but it still causes d- difficulties. And uh, to do the one thing that the, the American woman spoke about, um, Gabrielle, was yeah. you know, doing longitudinal studies. And that's how you can find out. You don't have to do RCT and randomized controlled trials. But we're, we've been trying but to But why her- are you still talking about how they should be done? That in 2016... They cost money to do. Longitudinal studies cost money to do, and they, that money has not been made available. Do, you know, Catherine did a rosy study about ten years ago. Mm. Um, yes, you know we're looking and at four hundred opiate users. You know, yes. opiate users. So we're looking at the only sort of aspect of the health service where they really can tell outcomes in a very good way, a systematic way, is cancer control, because there's a national cancer registry with fairly good survival figures now, so you can see. The mortality rate from breast cancer was X and now it's Y. Mortality rate mm. from leukemia was X and it's now Y. For most of the health service, not just the drugs, those answers are not. Can, can, can is I it, just a Shane, yes, yeah. yeah. 
one of the difficulties about focusing exclusively on addiction and talking about addiction all the time is that it creates this kind of mystique. And it means that people working within the health and the social services become persuaded this is a very unusual, high-tech kind of problem. And so the only people who can deal with it are those who are specialists, addiction specialists. Mm. And what had been happening, in fairness to HSE and the old health boards, the department, is that the WHO line, which talks about a spectrum of disorders, there's a thing called audit, which was alcohol use disorders, plural, inventory tests, which can be done in about, I'd say, a minute and a half. And it, it establishes for most of us, touch wood, and thank God, and all the rest of it, we don't really have a serious alcohol problem. Then there are people who are described as hazardous drinkers. There are people who are harmful drinkers. At the end of the spectrum, there are people who are dependent. And the kind of care that they need then reflects where they are on that spectrum. And what is clear is that an awful lot of primary care people can be really helpful, including GPs and all of these people. And these, the provision of brief interventions has been shown internationally to be really helpful. The difficulties for the health service are in, in, in a health system where GPs are, are not uh, employees, mm-hmm. that it is difficult to introduce that. In fairness to Irish College of General Practitioners, they have tried to promote this. Mm-hmm. And there are far more opportunities than, than we perhaps realised in the past for all of these people. That is currently being done through the SARE programme in, in HSC. It's not just a healthy problem. Yeah. Yes, this is a social and a justice problem as well. So if you take a look at, say, the local and regional drugs task, drug and alcohol task forces, I mean, they have voluntary community, justice, education, children, uh, departmental representatives sitting on them. And so it's a whole approach It's to the whole person. Is, is that part of the problem, that because it's not cancer, that the health services will say, well, this isn't entirely our problem, we'll give the money to the Rutland Centre. We'll kind of outsource this. Well, the drug Rather policy than unit in the Department of Health are leading on the, the, the drug policy unit is situated within the Department of Health. But it is a cross-party, a cross-area you know, problem and it needs that to be addressed in that way. So there is funding for the drugs problem, uh, drug and alcohol problem across all departments because it's not just a health problem. Joe, in relation say, to alcohol again, what do you see as working? You know, where it's not a social problem, where there's just a man in the town who's breaking his family's heart and losing his business and everything is falling around him because he cannot stay off the drink. And he's done a residential thing and he's come back and he falls off the wagon again. What well, genuinely well, okay, helps What him? the public health approach says at that is we yeah. look at the whole population and we look at things that work, that'll work for the greatest number of people. Yeah. The single biggest intervention in relation to alcohol in Ireland that has saved human lives has been drink driving legislation. Right. That is under attack now. Some TDs want exemptions for rural... You know, so that is an example of evidence-based practice that actually have the road deaths. Now, we don't know which 200 people were saved. Yeah. So that worked. Uh, we took it from Australia, where they had a problem as well. In terms of the individual person who's reckoned, I yeah. think that's very much an individual thing. I mean, I think, the, but obviously, the, the you know, there's a whole process that has to be gone through that the person has to accept that there's something. I mean, they, you know, the giving up drink is, or giving up smoking is very easy. Like, I've done it a thousand times. It's staying off is the problem, yeah. you know, so... Uh, it does it's, have it's, to help people with you, the stigma as well, yeah. and big stigma. You know, families can provide mm. support. And, I mean, there are lots of people who have given up 
and they don't necessarily want to go and say, here I am, I was an alcoholic, now I'm not, you know. Because it, there is a stigma and people want to put that bit of their lives behind. Isn't it funny, though, how mm. that contrast with America is? Because Gabrielle was talking about that, too, that the narrative of yes. the redemption is actually huge. But you're saying that's not the case here. We have to remove the stigma mm. and we're working towards that. I mean, I'm doing a piece of research in the southeast and I was talking to a beautiful mother who had three children and the shame that she felt. She couldn't ring a school to find out how her children were getting on she, because she even brought the stigma on herself apart from the stigma on society. So if we're talking about recovery, we have to help remove the stigma so that people can go back into society and regain their lives. So the whole recovery, harm reduction recovery, the removal of the stigma is a huge aspect to that. How would recovery. you... you yeah, the question Shane. about the man who, who uh, is in the town yeah. and breaking his heart. Realistically, people who work in health and social services know... That if somebody really doesn't want to stop drinking, doesn't seem to be able to stop drinking, sometimes you have to throw in the towel on that. And uh, that there is nothing you can do. And at that point, possibly help, help from social services for his wife and his family or something like that, or the police insisting that if he wants to get drunk, he can get drunk, but he can't terrorise the local area. And if you look at our mental health legislation, it's interesting, you know, that uh, we have... Broadly, a form of psychiatry that is the same as what you would find internationally. And um, this is the one area of the health system where you can be involuntarily hospitalised. So that people who have, say, serious psychotic conditions, who pose a threat to themselves or to others, or who are not going to recover unless they're hospitalised, they can be hospitalised against their wishes. But one of there are three exclusions. One is what they call social deviance, which, of course, is not really illness of any kind. The other is personality disorder and the third is addiction. So that within our health system, our policy and legislation, it doesn't allow you to commit addicts to hospital and compel them to go for treatment. And I think most people probably would agree with that, that that's the way to do it. Right. And that gets back to what I was trying to get to at the start of the discussion, that someone in the grip of a psychotic attack, we recognise that they are utterly helpless in the face of this. There's nothing they can do about it without intervention and medication. Someone in the grip of an alcoholic rage, Mm -hmm. even though I'm going to come back to the term alcoholic, we say, no, we don't commit them. We don't think that they're helpless in this. We do believe that they didn't have to take that drink and that there was some willpower there. Do you see... Joe. I think the, I think the evidence for psychotropic <laughs> interventions in acute schizophrenia is much stronger. You know why? Because why, if, why, no, why? Because well, it works <laughs> basically. Right. So someone who's in on a three day bender, and their wife comes down and yeah. says, "Please come on, no, leave me alone." You're saying that they have more willpower or more self determination than Into someone it. in the grip of a psychotic rage. It goes to willpower, does it? Human behaviour is is hard to understand. The human brain is the most complex organ. I mean, other things that work in alcohol, and they're more more population-based, but they help individuals. This whole idea of minimum unit pricing that's been talked about, to get rid of very, very cheap drink. Now, one of the target groups for that is people who are alcohol-dependent, that they will drink less alcohol, because if you have less, if, if it's very cheap, this is the law of economics, if things are very cheap, people will consume more of them. Yeah, another example of something that worked quite well uh, many years ago, there was a lot of concern about um, fatal overdose paracetamol. Yeah. You go into 
uh, supermarket now and ask for 200 paracetamol, you won't, be, you won't be given them. Yeah. You go in and ask for 10 crates of beer, you'll get the 10 of them. You know, so like different things, the timing for different interventions are, are, are good. So the, the in t- terms of trying to reduce our population harm from alcohol, there are evidence-based approaches which would work. But not everybody wants those approaches brought in because some people will lose money from that. So that this is the reality of public health policy making. Shane, on free will, you know, is there free will if somebody is alcohol dependent? Obviously, I couldn't answer that question at all. Um, <laughs> well, kill have a stab at it. Very few of us, I suspect, and I certainly don't subscribe to the notion that people have totally lost their will. And that is reflected, like I say, in the mental health legislation. It's also reflected in the ordinary criminal justice legislation. You know, if you are stopped and, and, and taken to court for drunk driving, it's not going to be a defence that you have no free will, that you are an alcoholic. Yeah. And you have a letter here from your GP to say that. We still accept people have some degree of free will. And go back to AA, I, I mean, the first of the steps they talk about, we admitted we were powerless. But they don't see that as, as, as an excuse. They see that as a reason to actually start to do something pragmatically. And what they do is say, we did this. Yeah, you don't think about the long term. Am I giving up alcohol for life? No, you, they, they often talk about doing just a day at a time. So I think that you can say probably that, that people's voluntary sort of consumption of alcohol is, is uh, if as you move into dependence, is diminished you certainly have diminished control over your drinking. But the idea that you have total loss of control is not something that I would be comfortable with and I suspect most other people wouldn't be either. Okay, so someone say who has an alcohol problem that they feel they need a drink in order to just function perhaps socially or maybe even to come into work. You know, they just they just can't cope without it. Do you think that idea of they need to give up alcohol completely is very important? Or do you think with the use of maybe medication, they can find a way to to moderate their drinking. I suppose personally, based on the research that I have done, I would say it depends on the individual. We now are gearing towards individual care plans. So what's the most important or the most important factor for that person? So what? it's not one size fits all. Mm. So whatever is best for me, how will I improve best with treatment. That's the sort of treatment I should have. So it's all about individual care plans and holistic treatment for the whole person. And Joe, you've been talking about how at different times, different substances are seen as being a different kind of problem. And that at the... Yeah. Do you think that this will follow a path of like moral progress where maybe in 50 years time we'll have a completely different and maybe a more... Um, negative attitude to alcohol consumption than we do now. It won't be indulged and seen uh, as this social Well, I think oil. alcohol won't be to the same extent. But think, yeah, 50 years is a long time off. Yeah, okay. I mean, we mentioned, you know, gambling was mentioned, but, you know, the, yeah. all of, that's quite a big issue as well. But I, I think norms change and things go in and out of fashion. And then we don't talk much about the suppliers, look at markets as well. and say, Because part of the issue when we started... With, with the methadone program is there was some intimidation by the drug dealers because that was an attack on their livelihood, not livelihood or what they made their money from, but that was sort of face down. So, like, the biggest illegal drug by far in Ireland is mm. cannabis. 
Right. And we, haven't spoken and we didn't even all, get you know? on to that. No. We didn't even get on um, to it. Shane, the, the, you give the, us the, the last point word, about maybe. The, someone who can't go into work because they're finding yeah. it so difficult. With it. The advice, say, that you would say a practitioner like would get a GP from Irish College of General Practitioners or someone, a psychiatrist, the guidelines from the Irish the College of Psychiatry in Ireland, particularly, say, in, in relation to something like the use of benzodiazepines. Yeah, I think you referred to yeah. that. It's very straightforward to say if someone uh, is using alcohol as a coping device, that is a very, very unhelpful coping strategy. And your first line would always be to try to help them one way or another to develop more healthy coping strategies, whether you do it yourself or you refer them to some kind of counselling or psychological services. And uh, again, the guidelines would be very clear on this, that if you're going to use uh, prescribe a benzodiazepine, it would be very much a short term thing, bearing in mind the fact that it doesn't provide any right. use for a long t- for a short, only a few weeks, and then the the risk of dependence is huge. What if you're functional? Why should the doctor judge what helps you cope and keeps you functioning? If you're uh, coping, you won't be going to a doctor anyway. I suspect. Right, but say for one person, it could be coffee. Say maybe I need my couple of glasses in at night, and that keeps me going. And that's what I need to keep going. And I'm not doing anyone else any, any harm. It's, it's if, working for and, me. If and I if need not, my yeah. Xanax. And if, if it's not damaging your health, why, why would you change it? Yeah. But you're asking, I mean, you say, why would it, you're asking advice. I mean, you don't have to take the advice. But, you know, you know, if you're using a substance to cope, that's not a great sign. Right. You know? But what's the difference between coffee and a Xanax then? God, well, I think there is... Xanax, Xanax has is a profound effect on your emotional yeah. functioning. Um, people who, who who are become dependent on, on benzodiazepines yeah. are transformed emotionally. Most of us mm. who drink coffee regularly yeah. aren't. The, um, thing, the thing with the benzos, uh, Sarah, is that the guidelines for benzos are short-term only, and that's observed in the breach rather than the observance. So I don't know. You were talking about fashion. And it, mm. it seems to me, Catherine, yeah. you know, that the health authorities take a view as to what is an appropriate or inappropriate chemical that allows you to cope. Well, it's not they take a view. We just see rising increases. I mean, we're seeing a rising increase in other opiates. And yeah. that's actually, we saw that sort of 10 years or so ago in the United States, and now we're seeing it here. Mm-hmm. So it's not so much fashion. It's like an epidemic in a sense. It, it moves. And I mean, we've seen, say, um, the problem well, substance use move from Dublin uh, to the regions. Uh, fashions or whatever are, are yeah. dictated partly by marketing. So be concerned about marketing of benzos to doctors, you know, so there are regulations about all of that now as well. And not all of the benzos, of course, are prescribed by doctors. Some are, yeah. it's almost mm-hmm. like a commodity and you know, they're traded for other stuff. I had better wrap this up, but I've learned a lot <laughs> and I need a coffee after it, definitely. Shane Butler, Joe Barry and Catherine Kominsky, many thanks for joining me today. Stephen Jordan produced, Aidan McKelvey researched and thank you for listening.